Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with World Series champ and 1974 National League MVP, Steve Garvey. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a 10-time All-Star, World Series champion, and the league's most valuable player in 1974, a Dodger legend, ladies and gentlemen, Steve Garvey. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Brett. Any Anything for the Boone family, anything. I, I appreciate that. Uh Right out of the shoot, how good of a football player were you? I never, you know, I grew up watching Steve Garvey play in the in the seventies and the eighties. Never thought football. Give me, give me a snapshot. Well, I grew up in Tampa, Florida, and, and back then, uh, your dad would uh, would testify to this. It was everything was seasonal. So in the fall, we played football, basketball in the winter, baseball, spring and summer. So. Um, you know, I fell in love with football, watching the, the game of the week on Saturdays. You know, normally it was Notre Dame or Oklahoma or somebody. And um, by the time I got to high school, by my junior year, I was all-conference twice and then ended up, I think, third-team All-State as a as kind of a rollout option quarterback. And, uh, and baseball career was going well. All-State there, too. I was going to be drafted uh, my senior year, probably in the first few rounds, ended up uh, drafted uh, number one in the third round by Minnesota. But uh, I wanted to go to college and play two sports. And back then they were starting that single sport mentality. So I had about 20 offers, Florida State for baseball, Florida football, Miami baseball, Auburn football. But uh, uh, I really didn't have any except for smaller schools like a, like a Colgate, uh, a two-way option. And then all of a sudden got a call from – Michigan State and Danny Litweiler, who had been at Florida State when uh, early in my high school career, and he had heard about me and called up and said, come on up, Steve, and see the campus. I think you'll fall in love with it. And Duffy Darty, our football coach, uh, is interested too. we got to got a scouting report on you. So Mom and I uh, took a Greyhound bus. My dad was a Greyhound bus driver, so we uh, took the bus up. There was a plane strike. And um, we got there to the campus. We're at the traditional Jenison Fieldhouse, and uh, Coach Littweiler was showing us all the trophies when Duffy Doherty came around uh, the corner, and, you know, the old Irishman came up and charmed Mom and me, and he finally said, well, son, you know, you come here, and we got 22,000 co-eds. You're going to have a date, uh, at least on Fridays, and (laughs) then we laughed, and my mother looked at him and said, Mr. Doherty, uh, Steve's come here for an education. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So he uh, he spent time with mom after that. But I loved it. Went there and played two years. Uh, went from quarterback to cornerback. And at that time, they only passed 12, 15 times a game. So I uh, I got to take on pulling guards and tackles and turn the ball carrier in. And uh, by the time I was drafted by the Dodgers in the spring of 68, uh, it was an IQ test. Should I go with the Dodgers in the first round or keep getting run over by 300-pound uh, pulling linemen? So, <laughs> although I loved it, I really did, and uh, got a chance to play at iconic stadiums like Michigan and Notre Dame, but uh, and of course Spartan Stadium. But I had uh, a little more talent in baseball. 
Yeah, that's that's a pretty awesome story because back then I, I don't know how many players were actually playing college Division One football and Division One baseball. Um, you went to Chamberlain High School in Tampa. I, I believe that's in Tampa. Yeah. And I, I was reading an interesting story because this was kind of a uh, what my childhood was like, you know, uh, dad and those Phillies teams that we'll get to a little bit later. You know, those those 70s are, are some of my favorite times That big red machine. You guys out in L.A., uh, you know, obviously the Phillies teams of the 70s. Um, but I got to go to spring training and be the bat boy. And that was a big thing for me, Steve, as a kid is, oh, dad's let me go to the park today. I get to, you know, get my uni on and go out there and, and St. or St. Peter, where was it? Clearwater for the Phillies. And, and, but I was reading, you got to have that similar experience as a kid. You, you bat boyed for the Brooklyn Dodgers, the Yankees and the Tigers. How did that come about? Well, mom and dad were from New York. Mom was a Yankee fan, and she gloated a lot. You know, the Yankees dominated there in the 40s and 50s, and dad was a a, a Dodger fan. Uh, My grandfather was a Brooklyn policeman, so it was natural to be a a bum fan, you know, the the old Brooklyn Dodgers. So it's a longer story, but uh, my grandparents and parents moved down to to Florida, um, and in the spring of 1956, Dad had become a Greyhound bus driver. So <clears throat> it was the end of the Grapefruit League. I think they had a couple of days left. And Dad came home. I was an only child. And I sat down at dinner, and he looked at me. He said, you want to skip school tomorrow? And I said, what? You never said that, Dad. What are we doing? He said, well, I'm getting a charter tomorrow. And he said, this is really exciting. To pick up the Brooklyn Dodgers from the Tampa airport and take them to St. Pete to play the Yankees in an exhibition game. And uh, for the historians listening... This was the spring after the 55 fall where the Dodgers finally beat the Yankees in seven games. So they were world champions. So I just started collecting tops cards. I had about 30 of them. And uh, I said, can I be right back? And they said, yeah. So I ran to my room. Under my bed was a Have a Tampa cigar box with these uh, tam- these tops cards. And I had six Dodgers. I had Reese and Hodgers and Frillo and Snyder and Robinson. And I came back and I said, Dad, are these the guys? He said, yeah. I said, we're going to see him tomorrow. And he said, well, we hope so. So uh, Mom had that smile on her face, you know, like she was so happy for us. And the next day we got the bus about 7 o'clock and uh, drove to the tarmac of Camp International Airport. And there were no concourses back then. You know, they just pushed up a ramp. And about 8.15 in the, one of those peach gray uh, sunrises, uh, in the distance, uh, this DC-7 prop jet was banking and it landed. It came by us and it had Dodgers on the side and a big baseball painted on the tail. And it went down, taxied back and pulled up to about uh, 30 yards from the bus. And Dad and I were standing in the front and I had my baseball cars. And... Um, they pushed the ramp up, ramp up, and the door opened, and off came Walt Alston, who would become a Hall of Fame manager, and Reese, and Charlie Neal, and Jim Gilliam, and then Snyder, and uh, the boys of summer. So I, uh, about eight years ago, my wife and I did a wonderful book called My Bat Boy Days. They chronicled the beginning of my falling in love with the game in such a unique way of having a chance to be up close and personal with uh, the world champions who just happened to be dad's favorite team. And mom kind of thought it was so charming. And, but we said in the book in our first chapter, as each of these players walked by, 
I would look at my cards and dad would point to who it was. And it was as if they walked off the cards and came to life. And I know you remember, you know, you were much smaller and these guys were so big and um, I would look up to them and they would look down at me. And back then we had these uh, flat top haircuts, you know, with butchwax. So mine was sticking right up and uh, a couple of the guys patted me on the head to see if it was really that prickly. <laughs> and we all laughed. But the last two guys were uh, were Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella. And uh, for some reason, they're walking and talking. And, and all of a sudden, they stopped. And Jackie Robinson looks at me. He goes, yeah, I, my mom had bought me my first uh, glove because four days later, we're starting the, the first uh, game of, of a new little league. My dad and a couple of gentlemen had started and uh, he said, son, you play baseball? And I, I said, yes, sir, we're starting this week. Great. He said, well, you, you practice hard, and uh, you listen to your coaches, and maybe someday you'll be a Dodger. And I looked at my dad, and I nodded my head. And then uh, Roy Campanella, who was coming off his third MVP, and everybody always thought Reese was the, was the captain of the team, and he was, but, but Campanella also in his own way um, – was right there with him. And he, he, he said the dreaded words to my dad, my dad is gray uniform and Joe name tag. He says, Joe, is he a pretty good student? And my dad went, well, I looked at my dad and I dad cover for me. And, you know, uh, they used to call us hyper, you know, when you uh, were very active, which today we call ADHD and I couldn't concentrate very much. Uh, auditory processing wasn't good. So I had trouble reading. And uh, dad said, well, you know, Roy's having struggling uh, times with reading, but we're working with him every night. And, you know, he's coming along. And then Mr. Campanella looked at me and he said, son, doesn't matter how hard you work uh, or how well you do. If you can't think and problem solve and make quick decisions, he said, you'll never make it. And I, I nodded my head. Yes, sir. And he patted me on the head, and got on the bus and uh we drove over to Alang Field in St. Petersburg, the iconic uh, baseball field. And uh, the guys were getting off the bus and grabbing their duffels, and I'm standing there with Dad. And a little man comes out with a cigar and boxer shorts, and he looks at me and says, Kid, you want a bad boy? And I went, looked at my dad, and I said, yeah. So um, that was the beginning. I loved the heavy bat bags out and the balls and lined them up, you know, in the uh, dugout, the only child neatness and the Yankees were taking batting practice and you heard and that that special sound you know that you you hear with power and I turned around there was Mickey Mantle hitting balls into uh, Pinellas Bay and uh, I had my mouth wide open and uh, watching you know all of us love Mickey no matter what team you really pulled for other heroes he was the one so that day I got a chance to bat boy and and uh get rosin on my shoes and sit on the bench and, and put Jackie uh, Robinson's glove on and Campanella's brand new heart of the hide mitt and listen to Hodges and Reese uh, talk about the pitcher and how he was holding the ball for a curveball and a fastball. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about, but dad and I would talk frequently, you know, about that. So that was my baptism, you know, and I, I, I spent about four five, six years till I got to, you know, Beginnings of high school, two or three times each spring. Like you, like you said, did some couple games for the Yankees in Detroit. But to grow up with your idols, to be around it, to absorb it, I think for me and for you and any young man, um, it was quite the blessing. Yeah, that's a really cool story. Yeah, because my, <clears throat> you know, I, I, 
we're always asked, you know, do you have a favorite player growing up? And and I remember with the life that I led as a kid and, and when you're a kid, you know, you, you don't think, uh, you know, it's, it's not until recently, you know, now I'm in my fifties and I look back and I go, wow, I had such a cool childhood. And at the time it was just normal. You know, I go to the ballpark with dad because that was his job and I didn't have a favorite player. I loved all the players. And, and you talk about bat boy. And I remember when dad told me if I got in trouble or something, he said, no, Brett, you're not going to be able to come put your uni on and, and shag and, and bat boy today man that was the end of the world for me like how can you not allow me to bat boy <laughs> today but uh Great. man i i have so many cool memories and and the way you explained it there different cast of characters than my generation but but equally cool you know that 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 is that's really neat um we're you said you were third third round pick out of high school yeah. uh by minnesota but you end up going to Michigan State. You're going to play both ways. You play football. You're going to play baseball. Did you ever consider signing out of high school, or was it always? You, you mentioned your mom said that 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 education yeah. was really important for you. Did you ever consider signing, or were you going to college no matter what? Well, I I would have, but you know, bonuses. The first round choice at that time was twenty, you know, twenty five thousand, and I think Minnesota offered eleven, and. Uh, I would be the, I was an only child. So I going to college was something special and a goal of the whole family. So I was really going to, um, going to go to college. And again, I had some wonderful, you know, universities that, uh, uh, were bidding on me, so to speak. And I, I always say choosing Michigan state, different culture, different environment, uh, was one of the you know best choices of my life. And I uh, ended up in there, you know, Hall of Fame and uh, go back every year and support them in many ways. And finally, uh, the last of our seven children, Sean Fitzpatrick, just graduated in uh, in May of uh, 2021 uh, and uh, working for Oracle in Austin now, but graduated from there, played club football, um, you know, and, and really loved the experience. And he and I have that little common bond about Michigan state that'll last forever. And, and again, choices we make in life, sometimes, uh, you know, the toughest one is, is universities and colleges, but that was uh, one that I hit the first pitch and kind of a home run for us. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone podcast. Dan. Thanks Boone. Hoops fans. The latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOON, B-O-O-N-E, bet just $1 on any NBA team and get $150 in free bets if they win. 
That's promo code Boone at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Minimum $5 deposit. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN Redline 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-HOPENY or text HOPENY 467-369. And now back to my interview with Steve Garvey. Yeah, when I went to USC, uh, a teammate of mine at the time was Rodney Pete, and he was, you know, the big uh, All-American quarterback at the time. He's a little bit older than me, but he just popped up one day during during uh spring and said yeah i'm also on the baseball team so he's my third baseman he loved baseball and rodney was actually a talented player we had him on the on the show recently uh but he was kind of the opposite of you you went on to 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 pursue the baseball career i'd always ask rodney because rodney would have been a high pick and he said uh, i think he got drafted three or four times and he always said brett uh, I love football and I really like playing baseball. And uh, he was kind of the opposite. It's, he he knew football was his route, even though he could have right. excelled. I think he could have been a big leaguer, uh, you know, if he would have chosen the baseball side. But it, but it's interesting uh, to see the difference. You went one way, he went the other. Like you said, uh, you were number one pick by the Dodgers. Um in 1968, you end up signing with them. We went back to your Michigan State. You, you got inducted there in 2010, and, and the number 10 retired in 2014. That had to be pretty cool for you. Uh, but let's talk about uh, being a first-round pick uh, out of Michigan State. 1968, you head right to the Pioneer League, and I was looking – right out of the shoot, you hit 338 with 20 homers. That's pretty good your first year at A-ball. Yeah, in 59 games, you know, and it was, um, well, Guy Wellman, the great uh, the scout of the Dodgers, who signed most of the top draft choices. That And that draft of 68, that was arguably maybe the greatest draft in history. I think we had eight guys in that draft that played in the major leagues. But it was uh, it was Bobby Valentine, Tom Fischorek, Bill Buckner, Ron Say, um you know, Davey Lopes. I mean, look at these guys now. All the guys probably will probably average 10 or 11 years in the majors. Um, but that's So I sign. It's a long, much longer story. And uh, Guy Wellman says to us, uh, well, we got two places we can send Stevie, Daytona Beach, Florida State League. And, and uh, we're thinking, yeah, played here, humidity, rain. And he said, but we'd like to send you to Ogden, Utah. And my dad said, isn't that up in the mountains a little bit, Guy? And he said, yeah, he's we'll go there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, having some power and having the ball travel farther, but he said, no, we got this manager, um, at Ogden that's been pretty successful and, uh, he, uh, carries the doctrine of the Dodgers wherever he goes. So next day I took a plane and went from Tampa to St. Louis to Salt Lake city to Ogden and, yeah, got off the plane. My my duffels took a cab to Main Street in the Ben Loman Hotel. It's like the Plaza Hotel of uh, Ogden. And I'm walking in, and it's got almost like the Plaza too, with palm trees. And walking down um, the path there to the front desk, and I see this man. About six seven guys look like my age. They're laughing, 
And as I'm coming up, I get about 15 feet away, and this man turns around. He starts walking toward me. He goes, you must be the Garb. And I said, oh, my Lord, who's this? And he says, son, I'm Tommy Lasorda, and your life's changed forever. And I thought, oh, my Lord. <laughs> Here I am, a professional, finally. And he said, my life's changed forever. And, uh, and it did. You know, we, uh, you know, you have that week or eight or nine days to prepare for short season. And every day, twice a day, we'd go out there and Tommy would uh, start talking about the doctrine of uh, the Dodger way to play baseball and history and, and how we're going to play the game. And, uh, and uh, then about three or four days into it, I said, Tommy, you mean uh, we're playing for the front of, the front of the jersey and not the back? He said, absolutely, Garb. He said, you're getting it, son. And uh, he had been there two years prior. He had won both years the uh, league. And then that year down to the last game, and I think Tom Peshorek hit a home run. We won 11-9 and uh, won the third championship. And that was the beginning of uh, my professional career and life with Tommy. And uh, he ended up being like a second father. And, you know, we lost him you know, January of uh, uh, 2021, uh, and I called him P.T. Barnum of baseball, and anybody that knew him understood that Tommy was the, the ringleader under the big tent, both on the field and off the field and in the media, and he was truly such a unique man, and all of us were blessed to have him as a manager and as a friend. Yeah, definitely one of the great ambassadors this game's ever seen. And that's with the, the bleeding Dodger yeah. blue aside. You know, he was especially the ambassador for the Dodgers, but for the entire game of baseball character. You know, I, I had, uh, you know, and I told this story and it, and it was interesting. You know, we're, we're blessed enough to play this game that yourself and my myself, we played you know, uh, as a career. And, and in, in our, in our travels you know we're also fortunate some years to get to go to the postseason and in 1995 um it was my first time in the postseason and we played the dodgers and i had known tommy you know from my childhood and just through you guys playing and dad somehow i had you know i had met tommy on several occasions but i was i was really impressed because he was as bigger than life, uh, almost like a cartoon character of baseball. And we beat the Dodgers. I think it was four games. We were in Cincinnati at Riverfront. And after the game, we were having our celebration, you know, going to the next round of the playoffs. And Tommy Lasorda came over and went up to each. I, I'll never forget this. It was Larkin and myself. And and I think it was it was either Kevin Mitchell or Ron Gant that was, that was next to me. And he went up to I, I watched Tommy walk around that locker room. I mean, avoiding champagne and guys high-fiving and hugging. And he came up and, he, and he, I remember what he said to me. He shook my hand. He said, Brett, that was a hell of a series. Better team won this time. And I just want to wish you the best. I thought it was a real class act, you know, because we get to go to the postseason. Yeah. I'd never had an opposing manager, especially someone we had just beat, uh, come over to the to – the, uh, to our clubhouse and personally wish you well. I mean, it was kind of, it's something that's really not expected and it caught me off guard, but I had a, I had a, you know, I, I never, I always had a positive view of Tommy anyway, but that kind of sealed it that day when he did that. I thought it was, I thought it was very cool. Um, 1969 to go that's to Albuquerque. You only hit, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's who he was. He, uh, you know, of course, Tommy had uh, you know, significant success, but, you know, postseasons of 77, 78, World Championship 81, and then playoffs all the time. And, 
you know, he loved the game, but we also respected uh, the opposition and, and he knew what it took to get to the ultimate prize in the ring. Uh, but he also loved the game enough to, to uh, respect those that beat him. And, uh, and that's who he was. So again, whether you were a, a, a son in player form or the opposition, you know, this man had a passion for the game. 69 Albuquerque. I played in Albuquerque. Now that's a fun place to hit. You hit 373, the 14 homers. And in 69, you end up making your debut. You only get three ABs. You go one for three. But I found this interesting too. Once again, never thought of Steve Garvey growing up as a football player. I never thought of Steve Garvey as a third baseman. But you came up as a third baseman. And correct me on these facts if I'm right or wrong. Uh, a gentleman that you had met. Uh, back in your Bat Boys days, I believe Walter Alston's the skipper, yeah. and it's your first yeah. first taste of the big leagues, nineteen sixty nine. Uh, take me through that a little bit. Well, um, you know that uh, you can bring up some minor league players the uh, first of September. So uh, I had gone to um, to Albuquerque. I had it in my contract that I'd go back to Michigan State for spring term. Then first of June. Uh, and like you said, hitting in Albuquerque in the Texas League was uh, lots of fun. Uh, and, and that 372, I think I had two games that I was two for two and got rained out. So <laughs> that's, that's right. They, 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 back then, they wouldn't count that. No, they didn't. Yeah, right. So, uh, but it was um, it was a situation where that uh, that first day, September first, I fly in L.A. I'd never been there before. Couldn't we just wait to see the iconic cathedral of, of uh, baseball and Dodger Stadium and get a cab? And, you know, you come into Shiraz Ravine, you come over the hill and you come in and there it is. It's sitting there in this, this wonderful, uh, almost of a bowl, all these parking spots. And I go downstairs and I go to the clubhouse and Obi Kawano, the, the uh, clubhouse man, sees me. And now being a bat boy, he was first starting out towards the end of my bat boy days. So I remembered him and he took me down uh, through the locker room towards the end. And he gave, he said, had my name up there, Garvey. And I looked at my Jervis at Jersey and had number six on it. And I thought, wow, you know, single digit, my Lord. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you like that? And I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, we remember you as a bat boy. So I said, thank you. Well, Valentine Buckner and I uh, went out for early batting practice and we were so excited and you know, I'm hitting the ball out to right and center and deep in the bullpen and, you know, getting a little crowd watching us of those guys. And the game starts, we're playing the Mets, and uh, now it's the seventh inning. We're down 3-0, um, two out in the seventh, and the pitcher's up, and Alston looks at me, and he goes, you ready, kid? And I, I go, yes, sir. And I put my helmet on, and it's a brand-new bat, and I try to put some pine tar on it to get it a little sticky, and I get up, and I'm facing Jack Delora, who's a left-handed reliever, and, you know, typical little sinker slider, you know, run it in. And I get in there and I'm, I'm hitting. And, you know, you know me. I didn't walk very often, didn't strike out much, and I went up there to hit. So first pitch is a little cutter inside, and I turn on it, just miss the foul pole down the left field line. I think, boy, I could have kept that fair. And then he turns one over outside, and I, I, I'm a right center thinker, and I slice it just by the – right field foul pole. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this is pretty easy. I could have had two home runs. You know? So I get in the box and I'm ready now. And, and he winds up and throws and that ball comes out. And 
it's a screwball. And I had seen some change-ups, but never a screwball. And I go out, and I'm out front, and I go to swing, and it dives away, and I swing, extend the bat, comes out of my hands, and uh, goes over the third baseman's head, and literally javelins in the grass out there, strike three. So, you know, I'm kind of, okay. You know, I took my cuts, and I, I go back to the dugout, and there's Walt at the top step. And uh, he said, well, son, he said, that was a pretty auspicious start. He said, you, uh, you set a Dodger Stadium record for keeping a bat throw uh, fair. And he had that smile on his face. And he said, you know what, though? He said, you'll probably end up with 2,000 hits when it's all over. And he gave me a pat on the behind. He says, uh, we'll give you a few more bats this month. And uh, a couple of days later in Houston, I got my first hit. It was a double to left center. And like you said, ended up one for three, 333. Probably should have stopped there with uh, an all-time <laughs> 333 uh, average. But it was a... And, you know, when you come up like that, they're giving you a chance to absorb what being a major league player uh, entails and travel and home and all those things. And so, you know, I, I, I had I was a wild arm third baseman. You had mentioned third base. I got in a partial shoulder separation in football and never quite could get on top of the ball again and had to drop down. And there's not a big demand for a wild arm third baseman and uh Ultimately, you know, as uh, as everybody knows, I shifted to first in uh, on June 23rd of 1973, which was an epiphany in my career. But I, if I could get to the ball at third and, and uh, didn't have time, you know, to think about it, I was a pretty good thrower. But if I had time, I'd usually airmail air it high and low, even with Wes Parker, who won a number of gold gloves over there. So uh, my destiny and uh, the divinity was ending up at first base. Yeah, in '70, you go back to Spokane. You have a you have a good uh, you have a you hit 319 with 15 home runs. Before you come back to the Dodgers, you get you get 100 abs in '70, '71, and it's a little bit of a logjam. And and not only the fact that you're not playing first, but like you mentioned, you had Wes Parkner, you had Billy Buckner playing first base. So you're kind of eased into your big league career. '72, uh, you get 317 at bats, and as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. '73, you finally move over to first base. You end up hitting 304 that year, and uh, um. Kind of the the rest is kind of history, and this kind of gets into the fun part for me of those great Dodger infields. Uh, it's you know in today's game, it just doesn't seem you know you'll see a great infield once in a while, but it doesn't last. And and that's nothing against the players of today. That's that's the economics of today, and guys are moving all over the place. And you're lucky, you know, as a second baseman for years, uh, I was lucky to have a shortstop for more than two years. That that you kind of create a, yeah. a uh, a semblance with uh, it just doesn't happen that often. But back in that time, uh, it was pretty common. You talk, you know, I talked earlier about the big red machine, and, and it started with Rose and Concepcion and Morgan and, and Big Perez at first base. You know, my dad's Phillies teams. You had Rose at first, Trio, uh, Boa, and Schmidt, and obviously that iconic Dodger infield of Garvey, Lopes. Uh, Russell and uh, Ron say at third base. Uh, 
I don't know. That, that, that's, why, that's why I love that time so much because guys stuck together. That's kind of the beginning of your run. 1974, you're an all-star for the first time. You're going you're gonna to see that all-star game nine more times after that, totaling 10. And uh, 74 was just really your coming out. 312, 21, 111. You're the most valuable player. You go to the World Series. You end up losing to the A's, but you get 200 hits. And I didn't realize how many times you got 200 hits. You got 200 hits six times uh take me through that 74 year finally you're at a comfortable position they, they had cleared it out for you and now you were the first baseman and you come out and win that mvp end up going to your first world series one of i think five in your career um yeah. take me through that 74 season and and the beginning of that run with that great infield i i think later you had dusty baker in left field and uh obviously a lot of a lot of big big guys come later in the 70s to that dodgers organization but take me through those middle 70s it's it's the start of a run for you guys where uh the, the west is is the wild west in in the national league yeah uh, just to divest quickly to 73, I'm a guy without a, a position, you know, say had come up, um, tried a couple of games in the outfield in April and, you know, had a short arm. So that didn't work, but started pinch hitting. And, uh, you know, I started, I was the 24th guy on the team. So you, that means you pinch hit when the pitcher struggles starter, you know, by the third inning. <clears throat> and now I'm leaving the league in pinch hitting and it's June 23rd of 73. And, we have a first game of a double header against Cincinnati and I get one of the two hits and I'm sitting in my locker and between games and Walt Alston starts to walk by the same man I first saw as a bat boy in 56. And uh, all of a sudden he stops, he looks around, he goes, you ever play first? I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, I played one game at Little League, one game in AAA with a bad hamstring. And uh, he said, get a glove. Uh, we're struggling against lefties. You know, don't trip over the bag. Let's let's beat these guys tonight. So I uh, got two doubles, uh, dug a ball in the dirt, you know, high throw up the line. I catch a tag the runner, and um, and I come back after them sitting in my locker those days. You know where everything comes together, hard work pays off, and and I'm sitting there, and out of the corner of my eye, I see Alston come by again. Doesn't stop with it. We hear Jaeger is sitting next to me. He says. You're in there tomorrow. And I looked at Yeager. Is he talking to you or me? I think he's talking to you, Carl. And I was in there the next day. And that was that night before was the beginning of, say, Russell Lopes and myself. And uh, the beginning of really uh, my career, you know, 14 and a half years uh, at first. And um, finished the season there and uh, got off to a good start. Uh you know, everybody was tracking my rise and I wasn't on the all-star ballot. And all of a sudden there was this big movement to write my name in. And ultimately I uh, got over a million write-in votes and, and was, and to this day, the only uh, write-in all-star uh, starter. And uh, ironically, I came down with a mumps a week before, hadn't played much, go to Pittsburgh, didn't have a chance to practice and uh, no, no batting practice. And then up uh, two for four, you know, run scored, two RBIs, uh, field of my position, only guy to play the whole game for both teams. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a fairy tale and, uh, we win and I ultimately get the MVP of, uh, of the all-star game, my first big award. The team builds throughout the year. We were very young and, uh, uh, we get uh, through the playoffs and uh, get into uh, the World Series against the A's. And, of course, they were experienced and veterans. And this was the third year in a row. And, 
you know, we just Alston said uh, had a meeting about being cocky, and, uh, and we were a pretty cocky group. You know, that borderline between cocky and confident. We were riding the edge all the time, and we ended up losing to the A's. But that was the uh, the beginning of of really the infield and that stretch run from seventy three seventy four to uh, 85 and and the infield started to <clears throat> come apart with contracts expiring in in 82 and uh in 83 so that run though i call the golden era that great rivalry with with uh, cincinnati uh playing the phillies in uh in 70 uh 70 78 in those really classic playoffs and then playing the yankees afterwards then 81 uh, coming from behind in the first NLDS, NLCS against the Yankees and winning our first world championship. Uh, and then my contract ended after 82, as did Say's. Uh, Lopes ended after 81. Bill Russell was the only one to stay on. But arguably, <clears throat> the greatest infield in history, when you look at the number of games played together and accomplishments, and and uh, but you hit it right on the head. Uh, Brett, when it was a time when you could keep a team together, free agency really came about the end of the seventies and we had been locked up contract wise till, you know, 82, 83. So that, um, we were able to stay together for that period of time. And, uh, and again, the golden era of the, uh, Los Angeles Dodgers. I failed to mention as well, you started a gold glove run in 1974, coming over from third to first, and you win four consecutive after that through 77. Uh, and once again, I, I saw the hits, and I'm like, that, you know, you're not only are you getting 200 hits, uh, you're leading the league in, in games played. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but the gold glove, I took a, a tremendous amount of. Uh, uh, pride in because to be a two-way player you know um is the ultimate in the sport and i went 84 um i think the first arrowless season at, at first base with over you know 150 55 games so took a lot of pride in that and um i think ultimately top five in, in percentage uh at first base but i always said that once you realize that first base is a as a place where you can save runs and uh it became just as important to save them as to drive them in. So um, thank you for mentioning that. And, and you're right, it, because first base is kind of that position. Oh, just go over there and play first base. You know, you can't. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, as a middle infielder uh, during my career, I, I had some I had some really good first basemen. And I had Hal Morris uh, in Cincinnati, who was really an underrated first baseman, didn't get the accolades right. that he deserved. And then I ended up getting to play with Johnny Olerud, who was not only was he six five, but he had that big wingspan. And I'm telling you, you get a good first baseman over there, a Gold Glove caliber first baseman. Right? It's it it is so important, uh, but it's not talked about because. Once we trust you at first base, we can play our game. We can freewheel it. We can take chances because we know if we get it in the vicinity, you're going to take care of it. And I played with some guys that struggle at first base a little bit. And it's so much different, Steve. It's so much different because I'm thinking I've got to be perfect because he can't handle this. And usually what happens when I'm worried too much about hitting you right in the chest, I don't hit you right in the chest. But if I can do a backflip and and come up firing and I know if I get it in the area, usually I hit you in the chest, if that makes sense. Well, all the road you said was 6'5", right? 
And uh, six five, and he he was great. It was a vacuum. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I was five ten. I, I kind of started that way. Pete Rose was over there, another guy six foot and under. So, uh, so our motto was. Uh, throw it high, wave goodbye, throw it low, we're good to go, because I had this virtue as I was down there of picking balls out of the dirt. And, uh, yeah, I didn't have the, uh, you know, the pleasure of being 6'5", and, yeah, I know it truly was a phenomenal first baseman. But uh, Russell, Billy Russell had this, you know, quick wit, and would throw the ball, you know, around between innings, and he'd look over about, hey, Garb. Get off your knees. Give me a better target, you know, and I'd shake my fist at him like that. But, you know, when you can kid around like that, uh, you've got that special camaraderie in a team. And, and we had that through that great run. 77, uh, Skipper, from your minor league days, the, the iconic Tommy Lasorda takes over the Dodgers. You, you end up, you, you mentioned, beating Dad's Phillies. And that's where the Phillies were starting to to really build. You know, they end up eventually winning the World Series in 1980. I think one of those series, I was there. Was that the one where Gary Maddox dropped the, the line drive in center field? Well, uh, that's the one where it was a sinking liner. I think Russell yes. may have hit it. Yeah, and, I remember and, you know, that. He was a Gold Club center fielder, and it was at Dodger Stadium. And uh, it just, he came after it. And I thought he had it. And then, you know, depending on the spin, it just sank. And he reached out just off the end of his glove. And, of course, we uh, we got a couple runs in, and then the rest was history. But those two years, things like that happened. You know, the, the classic three-game series in Philadelphia where, you know, the Phillies are up and, and it's the ninth inning, and it's two out, and Vic D'Avolio with one or two strikes bunts, and he gets on. And then there's a ball that goes to Mike Schmidt, Gold Glover, and bounces off of him, and bang, bang, safe at, at first. And Manny hit, Moda hits a ball to the left, it's off Lazinski's glove, and all of a sudden we win. I mean, those series were just, you know, sprinkled with iconic moments from NLCS. Um, and of course, the Phillies would come back and get the Dodgers in, in, in a, this millennium. But back then, it was the Reds, the Phillies, and the Dodgers that were, you know, take your pick as to who, who you know, was the best team. 77, like you said, you beat the Phillies. You end up losing the World Series. Of the, it was kind of a repeat. 78, uh, you end up beating the Phillies, and you end up losing to the Yankees in the World Series, kind of Groundhog's Day. And in '78, yeah. you're you're the NLCS MVP. You'll have done that uh, before it's all said and done twice in your career. And uh, you, what all, you you go you go four years in a row driving in a hundred plus uh, '77. You end up hitting 33 home runs. A great time, not only for to be a Dodger, but a great time. Uh, for Steve Garvey in some big time years uh, that gets us to 81 and um, you end up being, I think now you've been to what three world series lost all three 81. You get to the world series again. And I believe that was the strike year, 110 games. You led, you led the league that year. You played in all 110. Um, 
but to, to come up short in three World Series, and I talk about it all the time on, on the podcast, uh, a lot of us, some of us are lucky to have gone to a World Series and, and uh, mm-hmm. let alone win a World Series. They're hard. I, I think your career and, and all the success you had uh, is attributed to that. It's like, wow, I, I got to, you got to go to five World Series, you ended up winning one. These are so hard to win and, and, so cool. And, and I've got a lot of friends. I got some friends that have four rings. I have some, yeah. some friends that are great hall of fame players that never had the opportunity to go to a world series. 1981 set the stage for me. You win your first ring. You end up beating the Yankees who beat you twice in 77 and 78. Uh, take me through that year. Well, it was, it was the oddest of years because of the, uh, lockout and strike in, in the middle of middle of it, six weeks, uh, off in the middle of a season, but uh, we were sensing in spring training that, you know, our time was running out because uh, again, Lopes's contract was going to be up and then mine and, and say, and, and wrestles. So, um, you know, we, uh, we got off to a good start um, playing Cincinnati, you know, tough again. And then we get to the strike and lockout and it was in St. Louis and, uh, and I had tweaked my wrist and I was uh, still right in, in the uh, in the depths, I think about 800 uh, games, consecutive game streak. And uh, the night before the, uh, the strike and lockout started, I could feel the wrist getting weaker. And uh, it was the bottom of the ninth inning, and we had a couple guys on. Reggie Smith hadn't started, and I looked at Tommy, and I said, Tommy, send up Reggie because I, I'm, I'm just – can't drive the ball. And he looked at me and he knew something had to be wrong because I never would ask out of game. And, uh, I thought, Oh my Lord, this, this is going to be it. And, uh, so the next morning we got up, we're on hold going to the stadium and all of a sudden the announcement of, uh, of the strike and lockout and, um, the season was put on hold and that six weeks was really a godsend because it gave me a time the opportunity to get my wrist back and strengthen then we um, we picked up the season, but it was determined there'd be two halves. And we had led Cincinnati by, I think, a game. And we were declared the first half winner uh, of the division. And um, and then when the, uh, the regular season was over, ironically, Cincinnati had the best record but didn't get into the postseason because of how it was, uh, how it was recalibrated. So we end up playing uh, Houston Astros in the first NLDS, really. Lose the first game, come back and win all three in the greatest weekend series in Dodger history. And then we uh, we play Montreal. Uh, NLCS back then was three out of five. We split in L.A., have to go to Montreal. We lose game three. Now we're really in a hole. I had a two-run homer, I think, eighth inning of game four. We pull that out. Now it's cold and dank uh, the next day, and we have this classic game in which Rick Monday hits a home run in the top of the ninth to put us ahead 2-1, and it ends up with bases loaded, and uh, Bob Welch is pitching, and and, uh, I think White was the hitter, and he just misses the foul pole right. Would have been a grand slam. And the next uh, pitch turns out to be a ground ball to Davy Lopes, who almost throws in the dirt. I kind of pick it out. So we win that. So we come from behind. We're, we're two, day, two games down, two games to one down. We go to New York. We had lost the off day because we were rained out in Montreal. 
And what do we do? Fall behind the first two games in uh, in uh, New York. So we're on the plane back, and the guys are in the uh, yeah, standing on the plane in the aisle and kind of lamenting that here, well, it's been a great season, great run. I said, what do you mean? I said, we got them right where we want them. They're looking at me. Garb's getting old. <laughs> and I said, well, look at how each series went. We got them 2-0 going home. So we go home, and um, we get winning home runs by uh, by Say and and, uh, and Jaeger, Pedro Guerrero. And we end up going back to New York in, in 81 with a 3-2 to two leading games. We get rained out the night back there. Sronsay had been hit in the head. So we um, we had hoped maybe he'd be able to come back, but he didn't. So we put Guerrero at third. And that night we win 7-4 going into, or maybe 7-3 going into the bottom of the night. Now in 77, you'll remember this, a lot of people, uh, Reggie Jackson had the phenomenal you know, last game, three home runs on three pitches at that memorable night. And the last one he hit was off of Charlie Huff Knuckler, I think in the yep. bottom of the eighth. He's rounding first, and and he looks at me, and I kind of applauded in my glove. And he smiled, and I nodded. And uh, after the game, Dick Young, the great writer, you know, one of those old New York writers, comes up to me and didn't say anything. He goes, did you clap in your glove? And I said, <laughs> again, he said, I've never – seen that before and I said well Dick I said if you can't recognize greatness then you don't understand the game you don't understand how difficult and complex it is and you've got to, got to celebrate greatness and that's what I did so he laughed and he and he put his article the next day Garvey celebrates Jackson you know realizes so anyhow fast forward now it's the bottom of the night two out and Reggie's at first base and um, he says Garvey it's your turn now I said, thanks, Reg. And he pats me on the behind. I look up and it's 1159. These, these moments that are indelible. And, uh, Steve Howe throws the next pitch, fly ball to center field. Kenny Landro squeezes it. Now for that, that moment, you realize all those days playing wiffle ball in the front yard. And for me, it was Dodgers and Yankees and cork ball and all that and, and simulating winning a world championship. Now you're a world champion. And, uh, what happens? Well, the obligatory run to the mound. And uh, I come running over. Steve Yeager has Steve Howe up in the air. I come flying in, and it's a, it's a great Sports Illustrated picture, and it's the three Steves at the highlights of our career. And we all come down. What people don't see is Yeager spins Howe. Howe clocks me with his elbow, knocks my hat off. I'm seeing stars. And if I didn't have this Irish chin, right, I would have been out cold, uh, on the mound at Yankee Stadium <laughs> at my world championship. And uh, I grab my hat and run through the crowd, and I get to the tunnel, and Steve uh, Brenner, our publicist, is he okay? I said, yeah. I said, I was almost knocked out. And uh, he says, here in New York, you would have been on the mound. They would have stripped you of your uniform and your, you know, <laughs> your shoes and everything. I said, I'm glad that didn't happen. But, uh, but when people say the highlight of your career – I say I've had a lot of wonderful moments, but to win a world championship's the ultimate because it's a team sport. Yeah, that's awesome. You give back to LA. Did you guys have a? Did you have a uh, parade? We did. Yeah, it was a wonderful parade down the Alvarado Street to uh, to City Hall, and you know they're just great pictures. And uh, and of course at City Hall is this wonderful run of steps, and of course. Tommy's cheerleading the crowd and all of us are waving and 
you know, it's a residual of winning the world championship. And for us, it was, it was, uh, you know, it was finally, it was a relief. It was an exhale. Uh, the pressure had been building. So now to have that world championship, uh, I think really um, paraphrased uh, or, or, or put the quotes in quotes that, that uh, golden era of eight and a half years when uh, that team, that was very special. And because we were able to stay together, even through the beginnings of free agency, um, made it happen. So um I had one in the pocket, so to speak. And then I fortunately get a chance to play one more in San Diego with the Padres. And I felt extremely good about helping Ted to take that team to the World Series for the first time. And we got to that after the 82 season, you're a free agent. And uh, you've been with the you've been with the Dodgers now since you're you're a baby. You know you're sixty eight to eighty two. Uh, you end up signing at the time is it's a huge deal. You know six point six yeah. for five years. Um, and I don't know back then. You know you mentioned the Phillies and the Reds. Those were the big rivalries. You know later came uh, the Houston Astros. You know Montreal at the end of the seventies had a really good team. Um, but I don't know if there was that big rivalry because the Padres really hadn't done anything between the Dodgers and the Padres. Yeah, it's a hundred, it's a hundred miles apart. But uh, I don't know. It, well, I guess you could tell me. Was it a big deal going from the Dodgers to the Padres just down the freeway? Um, yeah. I, I don't think there was that big a rival. Anyway, you're there since '68. You're a free agent. You sign with the Padres. That had to be a little bit strange. You're used to you sure, used to showing up to Dodger Town every year, and for the first time in 15 years, you're, you're a Padre in Yuma, Arizona. <laughs> in Yuma, oh, I remember Stephen. The beginning at the beginning of my career, uh, my first big league it was 1991, and it was, you guys were the Padres were still in Yuma, and I thought we got to do this. You know, the Angels were in Palm Springs, and the 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 Padres are in Yuma, and that's that's back when uh, they've they've. It's a lot better for the players today, you know. Everybody's in one place, and and the and the bus rides are a lot shorter. But anyway, I'm sorry to cut you off. Continue. No, but you know, I the Dodgers made me an offer I could refuse. In negotiations uh, in '82, it became uh, uh, every town we went to, the press would come in, "Where are you?" and this and that, and all of a sudden. You know, Jerry Capstein, my agent, uh, we met right in the middle of the season and, and said, let's just tell everybody we're going to put this on hold. We don't want it to be a distraction. Negotiations went at that time till November 15th, and it, and it was the beginnings of free agency. So it wasn't true free agency. Five teams could could bid to, to, um, uh, to negotiate with you. So it was San Francisco, it was the Cubs, Yankees, Houston, and uh, Padres. And I did a little tour with... Uh, uh, with Jerry and uh, you know, Bob Lurie is a great man in San Francisco. Real estate, not a lot of liquidity. Who wants to who wants to play in Candlestick every home game? Uh, Cubs, I could have swore I was going to sign with them, and it disintegrated in the eleventh hour. And we paused that. Went to New York. Steinbrenner uh, said, "I'd love to sign you, but I've got three American League guys that I've committed to. But I'll play it up, and I'll get some more money for you." We said, "Thank you." Went to Houston and. Uh, Playing in the Dome wasn't great for a hitter there either. So I get to San Diego, and Ray Kroc wants to meet with me, just he and I. So I go to his clifftop home in La Jolla, and he has me into his den. And uh, you, know, you look one way, and you see L.A., and you look the other way, and it's Mexico. And he had this little golf hat on. Of course, the founder of McDonald's. And 
We sit down. He looks right at me. He said, I want you here, son. I said, thank you, Mr. Croc. He said, uh, you can do a lot for this, this city, and I know what you can do on the field, and, and we need you. I said, thank you. You always want to be needed. He said, I got one uh, problem, though. And he pauses, and I said, yes, sir. He goes, I can only pay in Big Macs and French fries. And he laughed. <laughs> and I said, well, can I ask for a lifetime? And he goes, yeah, you can have for a lifetime. He said, uh, I probably can find a few bucks. I'll, uh, I'll tell Ballard, uh, who was his son-in-law, who was president, to uh, get in touch with uh, Jerry Capstein. He said, as long as, as you want to play here. I said, I do. I said, I think I can help create history here. It's a nationally West. There's not as many variables as going the other league. And uh, so that was the beginning of uh, five years in San Diego. The first year, I unfortunately, um, slid into home plate uh, in, in May, tore my thumb, ended the consecutive game streak at 1,207 games, which is fourth all-time, still a National League record, and maybe arguably the, the record that I hold um, in highest esteem because it makes a statement for my commitment to the game. And people say, well, were we ever injured? I said, sure. Hairline fracture of my, my, uh, my pinky and hyperextended elbow and flu and hamstrings. I said, but I went out there because I knew I could still make a contribution. And I said, but once your thumb is uh, dislocated and ligament torn, I said, you can't help then. So that was the end of the streak. But the next year we picked up uh, Gossage and Nettles in 84, you know, two veteran great ball players and guys. And we go all the way to the World Series against Detroit. And it may be as much. The Dodgers, I help perpetuate history. San Diego, you know, we helped start it, which is always a special place in my mind, in my heart, was to help that franchise and its fans to get real traction in the game. 84 and 85, you have two all-star seasons. Uh, Get back to another World Series. You're the NLCS for the uh, MVP for the second time in your career. Uh, but the 1,207 games and man, over time, how much I appreciate those type of streaks. Cause I'm telling you, Steve, I came up and I was, I had your mindset. I'm here. I play every single day. And at the time when I was a young player, you know, Cal was, was doing his thing. And, and I remembered uh, I was in Cincinnati and Davey Johnson I was a young player and he'd give me a day off every once in a while. And I would argue with him and Davey, I don't need a day off. I'm going to do what Cal does. And I went, he said, you want to be like Cal? I said, yeah. And I remember about a year later, oh, I was in an awful slump and he came up to me and he's kind of just feeling me out. He looks at me and he goes, "Uh, how you feeling, Booney? I said, "Uh, how do you think I'm feeling? He goes, Probably use a day off, huh? <laughs> and he gave me a day off. And and I that, that moment right there, I come to appreciate how hard it is to go out there every single day. And you mentioned, you know, set a set aside the injuries because you play with you play dinged up, but there's certain injuries that you just can't play with. And the fact that yeah. Cal went through it for that long. Without blowing up his ankle, you know, you know, you've had a, a, an ankle before where you just can't you can't walk on it no matter what you do. You know, they can shoot you up with a horse, horse tranquilizer and maybe get you out there. But there's certain injuries you can't. And I've really over my time in the game really appreciated the guys. And I heard it put so well. And another a, a fellow Dodger of yours, Eric Karos, I was listening to him. He was doing a game somewhere and he said, 
there should be six tools when when scouts evaluate players and and all the tools that we know ranked one to eight and he said in the and the last one should be the ability to post and I thought that was so such a good statement because he was saying it in gist but it made so much sense he said a lot of guys don't have the ability to be in that lineup day in and day out. And especially when you're a big part of an organization, you're, you're one of the stars of the team, you hit in the three hole. Uh, Mm -hmm. That team relies on you. And he said, the ability to post should be, uh, you should get bonus points for that. And I thought it was great because it is, you know, you've played, I'm sure you've played with guys that didn't have the ability to go out there. Once we get to the ballpark every day and I look at that lineup, I expect certain guys to be in that lineup because we need them to be in the lineup over 162 games for us to win. I understand you're going to get beat up here and there. You might have an injury that puts you on the IL or, you know, used to be the DL, but I expect you to come to the ballpark. And the fact that you played 1,207 games in a row, uh, that's pretty awesome. Did you have that mindset that I was talking about? Like, I'm going to break the record. And, and the day that you couldn't go out there, was it devastating or was it kind of, well, it is what it is? Well, the last play was a slide into home plate on a pass ball. First game with a doubleheader. First inning, Pascual Perez, who we, we know is a little different uh, thinker. <laughs> yeah. He uh, airmails the, air the ball and I take off and it hits the padding of uh, of a metal post behind uh, home plate at Jack Murphy Stadium and it's an easy score and it bounces back to the catcher and there's Pasquale striding uh, split leg on top of home plate and they never teach the pitchers to do that. They teach you to be back towards the mound. So I've got to decide within probably 10 feet whether I go in, probably take out his leg or do I go around and, and, and tag the plate? Well, I decide uh, to go around, put my hand down. There's a great picture in the San Diego Tribune that was taken the moment my thumb is on his heel and it's starting to bend. And uh, and then I'm there and insult to injury tags me out. And they're running off the field last out. I'm on my knees. I'm holding my, my hand and my thumb. I know there's a, you know something's wrong and uh, I know it's dislocated. I'm thinking I'll push it in. Then we'll go in and ice it. And the second game, I'll pinch it some some way and think of something. This is the mentality you have, right? And Dick uh, Dent, the trainer, comes out. He says, let me see. And I give my hand, my thumb pulls down. No support and ligament. And that's when I knew that um, it was over. And uh, so I go to the the end of the dugout, which is a tunnel at, at uh, Jack Murphy Stadium. And it had been a warm day. And all of a sudden, seven and a half years just drains from me. And I, I just kind of kind of go down on one knee and see, all right. I said, yeah. And, uh, I knew that all that dedication and time had finally ended. And, uh, I go in, there was orthopedic surgeon there that day comes down next day. It's operated on and I don't come back that season. Uh, but, uh, it's about your, your passion, your commitment. Just like you said, you had it, you understood it. You got good genes too, by the way. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and you do it because it's also that leadership element of the guys depending on you to go out there. And I think that's that's what defines you ultimately is uh, how you're perceived by your peers and, and by your opponents. And are you that uh, that gamer? And like Eric said, who's a dear friend, he's a little kid in San Diego growing up. Uh, do you go out there? Do they have to take you out um, before you'll you'll give in? 
And I think that's in, in all sports you see it, and uh, and especially in baseball because it's so methodical, so many games, that to be able to do that, again, ultimately is the definition of your commitment. You finish your career in San Diego, retire after the 87 uh, season, and, you know, once again with the numbers, you hit 307 times world champion. Uh, my favorite is the 200 hits six times. I, I got 200 hits in a season, and I'm telling you, I felt like I got 400 hits. To do it six times is is really impressive. Over 1,300 ribbies, 272 homers, and a 294 career. Um, and the game's played. Led the league six times, and, you know, we, we covered that you – I, I believe the record still holds today for the National League, which is 1,207 games straight. Um, 1988, number six, retired by the Padres. You know, I, I talked to a lot of guys on this podcast, a lot of Hall of Famers, a lot of guys that have had, you know, statues, which is probably, you get a statue, that's probably the ultimate. Uh, being in the uh, a team's Hall of Fame, awful impressive. But when you get your number retired, I think that's another level. You know, nobody will ever um, – where Steve Garvey's number again in in the history going forward of the of the Padres franchise when you got that call how'd that make you feel uh, it, it's a moment to pause because it is um, it, it's so very special because you know those of us who played the games and uh, in sports numbers um, can define people and uh, you know the number six uh, uh, Al Kaline, uh, Stan Musial, uh, take any number, and uh, you look at the the men that defined that number. Whether it was retired ultimately or not, fans uh, and the individual fans of a team, collective fans of the sport, uh, identify you by the number because it's 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 a long journey, and served well uh, by that player inside that jersey wearing that number. Fans don't always know us completely as individuals, but they do know the uniform and, and the number that is associated with us. So for the Padres to do that was the, was the ultimate honor. People say, well, you didn't play that long there. But what I did do in five years was help create a culture, I believe, of, uh, of winning, of uh, learning how to win, of, of teaching the fans what a winner looked like, of uh, integrating yourself in the community as, as a person. You know, being a professional on and off the field, and God blessed us with, with this uh, this career that we have, and the ability to get back and touch people and influence uh, people is uh, is a gift. So uh, to have my number retired there spoke of those of those things. And people, what happened? Why not in LA? I said, well, we, you know, they've had this um, this um, idea of if you make the Hall of Fame, they retire your number. Although it's it's been. Uh, Jim Gilliam passed away just before the World Series, I believe, in 77. His number was retired. So uh, whether they change that or not um, will be part of history. But to know the Padres did mine, as, uh, I'm very thankful for yeah, and as you mentioned, you know, you won a World Series with the Dodgers. I mean, everybody kind of knows Steve Garvey as a Dodger, but yeah. you, you, you started a, a, a new way in San Diego. You know, you got them to the World Series or you, I don't mean to say it, you were a big part of that, changing the way uh, San Diego Padre baseball was was perceived. And uh, that's that's kind of a, a feather in your cap as well. B.A.T., uh, the baseball assistance team, I know you've been very involved over the years. Uh, 
tell me a little bit about that and, and uh, some of the posit- positives in your life that have come from that. Yeah, well, that was founded by um, uh, Joe Graziola and uh, you know, a group of gentlemen, uh, Ralph Branca. I think Ted Williams was involved there. To be able to create a, um, a destination that people could go to for, uh, for help and support. I've always said we players are the authors and poets of the game. When the game ends, especially for those players back in the 50s and 60s, there were no real benefits, as you know, until Marvin Miller came along and started to lead the, the uh, Players Association towards parity. But that has consistently been over 30-plus years uh, a place for uh, relief for uh, men, women, members of the baseball family. It originally began as players and their families. Now it extends to the front office and the scouts and trainers and so forth. Uh, and never more than ever this last year and a half, two years because of COVID, the number of uh, individuals we've been able to help um, and probably spend five, six, seven times more than a, a usual year. It's a grant-based uh, foundation. Uh, so it's a place to go to, a refuge, a place that, uh, again, there are certain parameters, but uh, more than ever, uh, we're there for members of the baseball family. And, of course, you know, we go through um, challenges in life. I came down with prostate cancer maybe about six years ago, uh, had a radical prostatectomy, and through the grace of God, uh, I'm clean now. I've become chairman of Fans for the Cure at Randall's Foundation out of New York, uh, where the we're the ultimate in terms of awareness. Uh, we're in about 120 minor league stadiums, major league stadiums every year with awareness night. So, you know, like we talked before, and you know this so very well with things you do, um, with this journey comes opportunities to make a difference in, in baseball assistance team and um, fans for the cure and probably half a dozen, dozen other charities I belong to or a chance for, for myself and the Garvey family to, to give back. You know, we always say, Life is God's gift to us, and what we do with it is our gift to Him. And to be able to get back is uh, it's quite the honor. Quick rapid fire before I, I, I get you out of here. Favorite ballpark you ever played in? Well, I, I'm gonna. You know what? We got to go road. So I I I, I got to take yeah. Chavez <laughs> Chavez Ravine. It's out of there. Other than that, your home home yard favorite yard. Uh, Wrigley Field. You know, I'm kind of a historian, especially because of, you know, again, being a bat boy's young boy and reading about history and so forth. So a day game at Wrigley Field was always the ultimate to me. Uh, and maybe a nice dinner at night that you don't have, you know, until Sunday evening. <laughs> That's so, right. That's uh, right. Wrigley was the – yeah. Best player you ever saw. Well, I played against uh, a number of Hall of Famers, uh, 11 or 12 pitchers and, and uh, probably even more uh, players. Uh, so there was the Hank Aarons and the Willie Bases I played against and the Marichels and the Gibsons and the Ryans. Um, but I always say uh, the guy that epitomized uh, being a competitor and going out, he, he also had two 700-plus consecutive game streaks. And was relentless in the pursuit of um, of winning and, and defining the game was Pete Rose. And uh, of course, Pete's gone through a a very checkered life, and uh, um, you know a lot of things that, uh, that that people kind of derided him for. Uh, has he had his problems and challenges? Absolutely. But when he was on that field, and 
and you saw number 14 compete, it was the ultimate in, in the, being a competitor. So, uh, you know, the, and then there was the classic, you know, Hank Aaron and the hat flying off Willie Mays and all these men defined history. But day in, day out, Pete was the guy that I think uh, if you wanted to take your son and said, watch this player, this is how you play the game, it would be Pete. I have to agree with you there. Toughest pitcher you ever faced. <laughs> well, you know, I mean. I know there's all, they, when they ask me that question, I always say, there's a lot of them. You got an hour, yeah. but, but yeah, I always, yeah. you know, I have my answer. What's Steve Garvey's answer to that question? Phil Necro. And people say, Phil Necro, why? So, well, he threw the knuckleball. Maybe as good as anybody. And he didn't know where it was going. Catcher didn't know where it was going. And you're supposed to hit it. <laughs> and I said, and I'm a line drive hit. I'm a right center, you know, pretty close to the plate. Sure, I had some power, but I would get up there and hang over the plate and hope he hit me with it, you know. <laughs> because trying to hit it squarely was a great challenge. And uh, and by the way, you know, I'd get a 3-0 count, and I'd look for that fastball, and there'd be another knuckler. And, you know, Ron Say or Russell or Lokes would be 3-0, and they'd get a fastball, and they'd hit line draws. And I said to him one day, I said, hey, you get me 3-0, and you, and you throw me another knuckleball. What's going on? He said, I'm not going to let you beat me which I thought was the ultimate compliment. I said, okay, I'll take it. So, <laughs> so again, Phil Necro, you know, facing him, they, you know, the maybe four or five times a year, cause they were in the East Atlanta was uh, a heck of a challenge. All said and done. What do you want to be remembered for? Well, I, I would like to be remembered as somebody who, um, who really, you know, had a passion for the game. Uh, who on and off the field uh, did everything he could to to promote the the national pastime on the field, setting an example for uh, for young you know boys and girls on how to play the game and off the field, uh, setting an example for somebody who understood how blessed he was and wanted to do all he could to promote the game and and uh, and being you know fair and just and kind and merciful and and, and trying to help out others via bat and fan secure and things like that and. Uh, and to continue to keep uh, falling in love with the game. You know, just Valentine's Day, I I uh, put a little thing on there. I had this pink baseball, which I send to, you know, especially girls who, you know, want autograph. And I put it in a, an arrangement, and I had, you know, on Instagram, baseball, fall in love all over again. And uh, because we love the game the way it is, everybody talks about it's too long and this and that and trying to short it. The game is what it is. And uh, the reason there's a pace to it and the reason why we love it is because it's a lot like life. It's a, it's not a sprint. It's a journey. And um, when you go to the ballpark, um, it's a, uh, it's a few hours back in time that we need for, uh, for our souls. Steve Garvey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the Boom Podcast. That was a lot of fun. Uh, legendary Dodger that I'll always remember growing up watching and uh, doing a lot of great things off the field. Uh, we mentioned with Bat, but the, the numerous other charities. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on. And what we do each and every Boom Podcast at the end is we bring back the voice of the Boom Podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans. Dan? Gentlemen, how are you? Hey, Dan. All right, Steve. This one comes from Jeff in Wrigleyville. 1984, you guys versus the Cubs. Are you aware of how many hearts you crushed that year in the playoffs, meaning the Cubs? 
Well, I am. Uh, my wife's in Wheaton, and uh, she was a Cub fan, um, and that was before we met. So uh, I think she was disappointed in me then. She's grown to love me, obviously, because I, uh, I tried to explain to her I'm a non-discriminating hitter, and I would have done it against anybody else. <laughs> and that Lee Smith hit my bat. And uh, so it wasn't my fault. But you can, to this day, walk Michigan Avenue with me. And people will come out of the stores saying, you killed us in 84. How could you do that? You seem like a nice guy. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. But again, I would have done it against everybody. So, <laughs> And I hear that a lot. Thank you. And from our White Sox family over here, we have no problems with you crushing the Cubs. So keep it up. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh uh, quickly, I went to the uh, writer's dinner that winter. And I got the good guy award, you know, and half the room's White Sox, half the room's Cubs. Uh, <laughs> except, except the war. The White Sox fans are, are cheering and, and the Cub fans are throwing rolls across the room. With the, Hilton <laughs> Hilton. the damnedest thing you guys have ever seen. So, um, yes, I know the White Sox fans uh, love me. Oh, it's thick. It's a thick <laughs> love for you on the South Side. All right. Thank you so much for yeah. coming on, sir. We appreciate it. Okay, thanks, guys. Have a good day. All right, Brett, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director and producer and the voice of the Boone Podcast. EP executive producer, Rich Herrera. Digital content gets done by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. To follow Brett Boone on social media, he is at the moon 29 you can follow me on base on air b-a-s-s on air and for all of us here on the moon podcast i'm dan levy thanks for listening we'll see you soon take care